Young civilizationists are the new young earth creationists. This is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset. This is my book review of America Before by Graham Hancock. And don't worry, I'm going to explain what the heck I mean by that. Young civilizationists are the new young creationists. That's right. So this is my deep dive into Graham Hancock's uh, most recent book, which is America Before the Key to Earth's Lost Civilization. It's a follow-up to Magicians of the Gods. And this book painstakingly evaluates the evidence that hints at a lost civilization in deep antiquity. So, like I said, this is a deep dive podcast. I hope that you enjoy it. I do the whole podcasting game a little bit differently than a lot of other people out there that might be in your playlist. What a lot of podcasters do is they just do these uh, formulaic author interviews where they line up a new author to interview every week. And a lot of times they don't even actually read the book of that author. They just get the talking points of the book from a press release, and then they bring the author on their show, and then the author for 45 minutes or whatever goes over the main selling points of the book, hoping that people will buy it, right? There's that whole approach to podcasts. You can find a million podcasts like that out there. The other angle that a lot of people do is like a daily show where they either just talk about the news that happened any given day or what they do is every week they say, okay, we need seven different topics to talk about every day of the week. And maybe they spend 30 minutes, maybe they spend 45 minutes, maybe they spend an hour talking about the topic du jour. And I don't do either of those two formats. I do deep dives. And my reasoning behind that is that I'm a rigorous empiricist. I like information that has been kind of thoroughly vetted. I like information that is a bit more credible. And both of these kind of formats, where you're just uh, giving a platform to an author and having them pitch their book, and then the format where you're doing a daily show and you're just talking about the news, both of these are kind of shallow content formats. I find that they just don't go really deep. And so that's why I do the deep dive format instead. I spent about a month and a half reading this book. It is a long, dense book. And then I spent about 10 hours writing this review, uh, organizing my thoughts and looking at the evidence. So I do things in a little bit more thorough fashion. And it is certainly not the most uh, 
profitable way to do podcasting. If I was in this game to, you know, make money, I would do one of those other two more formulaic formats that grab more eyeballs. So if you're listening to this, I appreciate that you are also into this kind of more rigorous format, that you're a bit more of a connoisseur when it comes to your information sources. And I would really appreciate if you would help me. And I don't have like a a Patreon or some place where I'm soliciting donations to support what I do. That's what a lot of deep divers like myself do. But that's not really a format that I'm crazy about either. What I'd ask is that you just give this podcast or the article, which is linked below on my website, limitlessmindset.com, give that a share, send it to a friend, you know, in a private message or an email and say, hey, I thought you would find this really interesting. Or you can do any one of those algorithmic signal signal boosting type things. You can go into iTunes and leave Limitless Mindset Podcast a five-star review. You can give it a thumbs up, give it a like, give it a heart, give it whatever you can give it there, wherever you're listening to this. And that will, you know, that'll train the algorithm a little bit to appreciate this sort of deep dive content. And you are definitely going to want to head over to limitlessmindset.com backslash books backslash 600 America before, or just click the link below wherever you're listening to this. And you'll be able to see this really beautiful review that I put together. And this is a image rich JPEG and PNG powered book review because the content, the topic of this book, it is very visually rich. So that's what I did with my review. You're definitely going to want to go and check out some of the photos of what I'm talking about. So go and navigate over to that review page while you're listening to this podcast. Okay, so like I said, I'm going to make the case here by the end of this podcast, you're going to understand why I say that young civilizationists are the new young earth creationists. And I should start by making an admission. I used to be a young earth creationist, which means that I was among the Christians that believe that God created the world and universe about 6,000 years ago. A commonly held and dogma-driven view of history that we now view as absurd and anti-rational, which necessitates ignoring a lot of evidence. Almost nobody Christians included, is now a young earth creationist. But even the intelligentsia of society, of our modern day society, still holds some very dogmatic views of history 
that require ignoring a lot of evidence. Graham Hancock has written several books thoroughly documenting and analyzing this evidence. According to the mainstream view of history, our species suddenly jumped from scratching about in the dust to building the pyramids and other megaliths of tremendous proportions and size, civilizational endeavors requiring mastery of complex mathematics and engineering principles. While our modern civilization can barely keep the lights on in a lot of places, looking at you, California, and our modern civilization can't even keep the Notre Dame Cathedral from burning down randomly. We're made to believe that ancient humans jumped right from chasing down megafauna on the flatlands with spears to the decadent project of building giant monuments perfectly aligned to the astrological starscape above in a matter of, at the most, a few thousand years, while, while they were mired in a barbaric and deeply superstitious societal state. Indeed, young civilizationists, like young Earth creationists, believe, they have to believe that something magical happened about six millennia ago. And I don't think so. A more rational and scientific view of ancient history is becoming clearer. With a lot of resistance from the young civilizationists, yes, that is a phrase I just made up. You know, I gotta invent phrases. And here's the more rational view that there was a relatively advanced civilization present about 12,000 years ago that had mapped the earth and the night sky and seeded the ancient civilizations around the globe that we all learned about in grade school before its demise. So, First and foremost, I gotta address the quote-unquote skeptics. And skeptics, I will urge you to be a skeptic and not a dogmatic. I've invented another word here, a dogmatic, that is D-O-G-M-A-T-I-K. And I created a really funny meme with a really cute and a skeptical-looking kitty cat to go with this. And you are definitely going to want to go and check out that funny meme on the article for this book review on LimitlessMindset.com. That funny meme with that cute cat is worth it alone. Go check it out and share it around. Okay, okay, okay. So you might say, 
I'm a skeptical thinker. This Atlantis stuff is woo-woo, pseudoscientific nonsense. I don't buy it. Well, sorry, you're not a skeptical thinker. You're a dogmatic thinker, or a dogmatic, a word I just invented. A skeptical thinker would instead say something like, you, you think Atlantis existed? Well, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And then the true skeptic would change their mind if convincing evidence is presented. As a conspiracy curious type myself, I've watched all the documentaries on Flat Earth, and there is some evidence for Flat Earth, but it fails to measure up to the extraordinary and outlandish claim being made. I've read two of Hancock's books now, which methodically break down the evidence for Atlantis, and there's a lot of it, over 1,200 pages, with hundreds and hundreds of footnotes. And I know the next argument that the staunchest Atlantis skeptic would raise. Okay, Jonathan, have you read every article, book, and paper cited in the footnotes? How do you know that he's not just cherry-picking his data to support the story he wants to tell? No, of course not. I haven't read every single thing that's linked in the footnotes. Intellectual progress requires, and really any kind of learning, any kind of enlightenment, requires good faith engagement, good faith Discourse. It requires the mutual assumption that nobody is lying maliciously. I wouldn't read a book by an author who I assumed was a rank propagandist. If an author hasn't done his homework, it's usually painfully obvious. A for example, I, I criticized uh, Mark Manson, author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, for this. It's, it's painfully obvious when people are not putting rigorous research into books. A rigorous author should not simply say something like, This study supports my case. Insert footnote here. They should be able to quote a passage from the study that clearly supports the author's case. In reading this book review, you have to assume that I don't have some sneaky ulterior motive for my curiosity about Atlantis, for my spreading the word on it. One of the signs of an intellectual a public figure worth putting faith in is that they present and address the counter-arguments against the case they are making. And Hancock, the author, 
does that over and over again in his books to the point of tedium. And the final argument that my uh, hypothetical uh, contrarian skeptic might make at this point is, does it really matter if Atlantis existed? It was so long ago. Why does the origin of civilization even matter? Okay, now you're starting to ask interesting questions, my skeptical friend. I'll address them towards the end of this book. Review. Okay, moving on. America ante. In public school, very bored teenager you was taught in history class that Native American Indians came to North America relatively recently across the Bering Strait, right? But more recent discoveries are overturning this young civilizationist dogma. Quote, Far from being very recent, it is beginning to look as though the human presence in the Americas may be very old, perhaps much more than perhaps more than 100,000 years older than has hitherto been believed. On the anciency of native Americans. And yes, that's your new word. Anciency. Quote, when Tom Demir dug deep enough, he turned up evidence of humans in North America 130,000 years ago. That was sufficiently robust to make it through nature's rigorous peer review process and into print in April 2017. The enduring presence of humans of some kind in the Americas from perhaps as far back as 130,000 years ago until today. That's a very long time. It might be long enough, speaking entirely hypothetically, of course, for something that we recognize as an advanced civilization to have emerged in the Americas alongside the hunter-gatherers. Okay, let's talk about the Ceruti Mastodon. And this is a paradigm-shifting find. In fact, you're going to want to check out the, the images that I have of it. Okay, one of the key pieces of extraordinary evidence that supports the extraordinary claim of anciency. Quote, the real importance of the Ceruti Mastodon site is that it provides the first solid evidence, solid enough to make it into the pages of nature of a truly ancient human occupation in the New World in the 
Americas. If humans were in North America 130,000 years ago, more than twice as long as the span of the known human presence in Europe, that gives them 117,000 years to have evolved a high civilization before the Younger Dryas Cataclysm struck. So we move on to the mystery of the Mississippian mounds. And you are really going to want to check out the photos that I have of these. They are uh, beautiful, frankly. For thousands of years, Native American Mississippians have been in the business of building grassy mounds. They aren't nearly as epic as Egyptian pyramids or Stonehenge, but they hint at an advanced civilization in America. Quote, but in antiquity, the North American mound-building phenomena was centered on the Mississippi River. It is my case in this book that we do indeed find such a descendant civilization in the Mississippi Valley and that like in ancient Egypt, it carries the DNA of a ghost civilization of remote prehistory. Undoubtedly, they express themselves in many different ways. Yet, when it came to their earthworks, for some mysterious reason, they all did the same things, in the same ways, repeatedly reiterating the same memes linking great geometrical complexes on the ground to events in the sky. This fundamental, endlessly reiterated, endlessly reincarnated design, he says, seems to have no home base, no specific country or culture responsible for its phenomenon. This, however, is precisely what we would expect if its home base were a lost civilization, destroyed so completely and so deeply buried in time that it has been reduced to the stuff of myths and legends. Talking about the, the reproductive meme of these mounds that are found in North America. For example, Poverty Point is a notable megalithic mound site in modern-day Louisiana. Quote, Poverty Point does incorporate solstice alignments and may indeed be the world's largest solstice marker. All these places are man-made sanctuaries that speak to the union of heaven and earth at key moments of the year. They might rightly be described as hierophanies because their fundamental purpose is to reveal and manifest the sacred connection between 
macrocosm and microcosm, sky and ground, above and below. Ice Age Americans were Atlanteans? This is what the book suggests without using that word. I'll call them Atlanteans because I think it's deservedly evocative in the light of the evidence laid bare here. We know from more recent history that the cold is a crucial ingredient in the ascent of real civilization. Intense seasonal cold is an evolutionary pressure that selects for intelligence. You can think about that TV show, Game of Thrones, that everybody seems to love so much, where they have, I think it's a nine-year-long winter. Is that right? Is it nine years? I don't actually watch that TV show. And it's such a long winter that people say winter is coming and everybody needs to prepare for it, right? That long period of cold forces people into more of this long-term thinking preparation mindset, right? Cold and winter often produces a K-selected culture that builds things to last. And life was very chilly in America for the 100,000-year ice age that preceded the present. And we know now that there was people living in North America. Quote, a lost civilization of the ice age with global navigational and map making skills equivalent to our own in the late 18th and early 19th centuries would have had the capacity to establish outposts on every continent, but must also have had a homeland. If North America is where a lost civilization of prehistoric antiquity vanished, then by far the most significant problem we face in investigating it is the way that the quote-unquote crime scene was systematically wiped down by the cataclysmic events at the onset of the Younger Dryas. And that would be the Younger Dryas cosmic impact. Central to Hancock's grand vision of a lost civilization is a catastrophic cosmic encounter of biblical proportions. This book and its predecessor describe in depth what's increasingly being accepted by mainstream science and history, that an unfortunate encounter occurred between a comet and its entourage of civilization-killing asteroids 
and a Hoth-like North America about 12,000 years ago. The reason this, uh, people call it the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, the reason this isn't as mainstream as an asteroid killed off the dinosaurs is that the epicenter of the impact was a giant continent-wide ice sheet that covered most of modern-day Canada. So we don't have a convenient smoking gun of a impact crater like we have there in the Yucatan Peninsula. The book begins around the year 19,000 BC in Ohio. Quote, A spectacle awaits you, the like of which exists nowhere in the world today outside of Antarctica. That site is sheer, looming, continuous cliff of ice, rising more than a mile high and extending across almost the entire width of North America from the East Coast to the West Coast marks the southernmost extent of the ice cap in these parts. Numerous ancient cultures viewed a comet in the night sky as a bad omen. Might this be the cultural echo of the destruction wrought by the Younger Dryas Comet impact? It was hell on Earth, quite possibly the most traumatic event our species ever experienced. You'll want to read my kind of poetic uh, description of it in the article I did entitled The Forgotten Shiverers. I did do a podcast also. I appended it to my podcast entitled Atlantis Existed, and I do link to that. Go and, go and listen to that if this sort of thing is kind of uh, mindgasm-inducing for you. Okay, getting back into the book. What the evidence from the Greenland ice cores seems to indicate is an epoch of 21 years in which the Earth was hit every year, with the bombardments increasing annually in intensity until the 14th year when they peaked and then began to decline before ceasing in the 21st year. The Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis continues to make complete sense to me and to a great many scientists, and its 21-year window of maximum devastation peaking around 12,822 years ago deserves special attention. And you are definitely going to want to check out the timeline chart that I include that breaks down the Younger Dryas that shows how it did get really cold during the 
younger Dryas period. It's difficult to visualize this probably in the in the podcast format. The specter of destruction of this impact was cinematically epic. Quote, all living things within 100 kilometers of the Michigan impact died instantly. They were either burned by the heat blast or killed by the shockwave. On the east coast, 1,000 kilometers from the impact zone, the blinding flash on the horizon was followed by a sky that darkened ominously as it filled with the giant ice boulders ejected by the impact. Three minutes after the flash, the dark sky advanced relentlessly, and the ground shock as the first seismic waves from the extraterrestrial impact site arrived traveling at five kilometers a second. By this time, all animals and humans were aware that something terrible was happening. The sky continued to darken and then filled with bright streaks as the ice boulders in suborbital flights re-entered the atmosphere at speeds of three to four kilometers per second. As the giant ice boulders started falling, the thumping of the impacts sent shockwaves through the ground that traveled at five to eight kilometers a second. The shaking ground started to liquefy, trapping everyone. The ground had turned to quicksand, making it impossible to walk or run. At the peak of intensity, a hail of glacier ice chunks, many as big as baseball stadiums, left steam trails in the sky as they re-entered the atmosphere at supersonic speeds and crashed into the liquefied ground accompanied by the thunder of sonic booms. Wow. I hope somebody makes uh, one of those disaster porn movies out of out of this at some point. It'll it'll be awesome, right? I'd love to go and watch that in in IMAX, right? Quote, it's thought provoking, isn't it, that cosmic impacts whether by asteroids or by comets, can sometimes be of such magnitude that they drastically redirect the evolutionary path of life on Earth. Interestingly enough, some of the easiest people to convince of the younger Dryas impact and subsequent destruction of civilization are Christians. It's highly consistent with the mythological great deluge described in the first book of the Bible. 
the breakup of the North American ice sheet would have caused floods of mythological proportions all around the world. Genesis describes a decadent, deeply corrupt, and sinful civilization deserving of total destruction. Hancock views the Atlanteans as sort of enlightened colonists, spiritual seafarers, but the evidence that we do have for them hints at decadence. Did the Spartans leave a bunch of megaliths erected to immortalize their greatness? No, you know, they were Spartans. They weren't decadent. So what does it say about the Atlanteans that it would seem that they did? Interesting question. Might the Atlanteans have seen this great tribulation coming and done something to try to keep the flame of civilization alive? Quote, talking about Atlantis, its astronomer priests are therefore most unlikely to have missed these signs in the sky as our planet began its long journey toward intersection with a particularly lumpy and debris-filled filament of the torrid meteor stream where the menacing serpent-like tails of the outgassing larger fragments might have served as visible omens of the terrors to come. This is the stuff of an epic Hollywood blockbuster, isn't it? I, I sure hope some, you know, Hollywood movie movie studio directors decide to dump uh, $200 million into turning this into a really amazing movie. That's That's a movie... I would actually go to the theater and shell out the, the 10 bucks to watch. Moving on, genetic revelations. Genetics has become an increasingly precise science. A most tantalizing recent discovery is that Amazonians banged Australasians. That's right. Quote, such a signal was completely unexpected given the vast distance between Australasia and the Amazon and the absence of any overland DNA trail. Skogland and Reich therefore subjected it to particularly rigorous testing applying four different methods of statistical analysis to compare the genomes of 30 Central and South American peoples with the genomes of 197 other populations from around the world. We spent a really long time trying to make this result go away. Skogland explained, but it just got 
stronger. In the end, a statistically clear signal linking Native Americans in the Amazonian region of Brazil to present-day Australo-Melanesians and Andaman Islanders was confirmed. Fascinating, right? Hancock suggests that Atlanteans moved, probably via ships, these proto-South Asians to the Amazon. Quote, what has been preserved in those isolated, unadulterated Amazonian, Amazonian genomes that speaks to an ancient connection with Australasia might not be the traces of a full-scale migration, but something more like a one-off settlement by a relatively small group. Here's an interesting factoid from the book. We banged Denisovans. Quote, the current estimate is that 0.13 to 0.17%, so really not very much, of Native American DNA is of Denisovan origin. The Denisovans were one of the ancient species of sapiens that we competed and sometimes had firelit, cozy, cave, sexy time with, and I've got a cool photo of the Denisovan cave there in uh, Siberia. It's named that after the uh, Russian monk. I guess his name was Denisova. There was some monk that would hang out and meditate in a cave, so we just uh, named this whole uh, race of uh, people after him. That's kind of cool. I should really spend more time meditating in caves. The book questions, were Atlanteans Neanderthals? Quote, since the beginning of the second de decade of the 21st century, however, and with increasing certainty as the evidence has become overwhelming, a new image of the Neanderthals has as uh, sensitive, intelligent, symbolic, and creative beings capable of advanced thought processes and technological innovations has taken root among archaeologists and is set to become the ruling paradigm. So Neanderthals, they might not have been quite so barbaric. They might have actually been, you know, the kind of people that you could hang out and enjoy, you know, some wine and conversation about politics or or art with. <laughs> you are a hybrid. That's right. Quote, humans today are therefore, to a greater or lesser degree, hybrids who have inherited genes from Neanderthals, Denisovans, and archaic Homo sapiens. 
the Amazon was architected? That's what several chapters of the book hint at, but I'm not convinced. The Amazon is at least two million years old, dramatically predating even the Atlanteans. But Hancock points to the very special soil found in the Amazon as evidence that the rainforest was engineered for human habitation. And you're going to want to check out the cool photo I have of Terra Preta. The book describes Terra Preta, an extraordinarily fertile type of biochar soil, which is found in the Amazon. Quote, so fecund is Terra Preta, even after thousands of years of use, that it can still regenerate barren soils it is added to, and has been described as miracle earth. Most researchers believe that Terra Preta soils formed as composted material accumulated via incidental human activity, often in debris piles referred to as middens. That was a word I didn't, didn't know, middens. Isn't it more logical that the settlement and expansion of human population in the Amazon was a planned affair in which the spread of Terra Preta was a precondition for the development of large settlements rather than a consequence of it? That's what Hancock proposes. The idea is that the Amazon was kind of planned, that it was a, a place that the Atlanteans kind of engineered, or maybe they, uh, they optimized the Amazon a bit as a place ideal for people to live, which I find that just kind of Hard to believe. However, this Terra Preta stuff, which you are going to want to go and look up, look it up. I found this. I found particularly fascinating, as I as I'm a doomsday prepper survivalist kind of dude. In fact, I, I I stopped reading the book right there, and I told my wife, babe, 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 I I need to tell you about this really fascinating fascinating kind of soil that I just learned about. And she said, oh my gosh, Jonathan, this is so boring. This is going to put me to sleep. <laughs> the more you talk about this, this terra preta stuff, the, the sooner I'll get to sleep. So this is uh, the kind of soil that I'd want for my quote unquote earth ship. Go and, go and look that up. That's kind of a prepper speak for like a, for like an isolated compound out there in uh, the middle of nowhere where you where you could set up your own, you know, autonomous uh, territory and you could do your own farming and you could be, you know, you could be totally uh, 
on on your own and you'd be fine. Uh, Terra Preto would be ideal for that. In fact, I'll probably add it to my my prepping content. However, before you go search Amazon.com for this Amazonian soil, sorry, you can't buy it. Uh, fortunately, although I did actually, I take that back. I found I found a Swiss company selling Swiss biochar soil, but apparently they only sell it in Swiss francs. So if you've got Swiss francs, then uh, maybe you want to maybe you want to Google Swiss biochar soil. Uh, for the rest of us, it's really not that complicated to DIY terra preta to make it yourself. It's this, what you kind of do is you get soil and then you leave the soil a little bit moist and then you introduce um, things like old bones. You introduce all these organic kind of waste products into the soil and then you start a fire and you throw the soil on it and you let the soil kind of smolder. It's it's more complicated than that. Of course, there's people that have figured this out to a science, but it's, uh, yeah, it's something that you could DIY in your own backyard and then have a uh, highly productive, nutritious farm. Pretty cool, right? There's a book about it entitled Terra Preta, How the World's Most Fertile Soil Can Help Reverse Climate Change and Reduce world hunger. And I might actually read that that book. So keep an eye on uh keep an eye out for my my coming book reviews. Okay, however, America before concludes the rainforest, the Amazon itself is an anthropocentric cultivated ordered garden and that a miraculous man-made soil, terra preta, was developed in the Amazon in deep antiquity, bringing fertility to otherwise agriculturally unproductive lands and imbued with astonishing powers of self-renewal that modern scientists marvel at and do not yet fully understand. Moving on, let's talk about Painel do Palau. That's my attempt at a Brazilian Portuguese accent. This is another outstanding geoastronomical site that features a conspicuous calendar. You're going to want to go and look at the photos of it, and you're going to say, that looks just like my Gmail calendar. Quote, the art and alignments at Panalu Balau tell us that cultures in the heart of the Amazon 13,000 years ago engaged and utilized sophisticated knowledge of astronomy. Panal du Palau is important because it tells us that the meme of sacred structures aligned to the solstices and equinoxes found in monumental art and architecture around the world has been present in the Amazon for at least 13,000 years. Quote, these studies demonstrate that far from being a pristine 
natural environment, the Amazon is largely a human creation. Moving on from the Amazon to the close-mindedness of the mainstream. One of the points that Hancock's work drives home is that institutional archaeology is extremely resistant to changing paradigms and new findings. New evidence must be disregarded if it doesn't conform to established paradigms, theories, and dogma. Quote, the archaeological mainstream is an intensely conservative and territorial scholarly community resistant to change whose deeply embedded prejudices deny that our Stone Age ancestors could have possessed anything other than the most primitive and rudimentary technological abilities. As so often in science, statements touted as facts turn out to be opinions contradicted by other opinions that are also touted as facts. <laughs> I thought that was a great a great line describing describing science. Statements touted as facts turn out to be opinions contradicted by other opinions that are also touted as facts. Contrary to the mainstream, my, my broad conclusion is that an advanced global seafaring civilization existed during the Ice Age, that it mapped the Earth as it looked then with stunning accuracy. The Perry Reese map stands as unignorable evidence that someone mapped the American continents before the European explorer, explorers. And you are going to want to check out pictures of the Perry Reese map. It's, it's pretty fascinating. I have a very cool picture on my website. Quote, it is my contention that these anomalous maps can be traced back to lost source documents that could only have originated with a civilization at least advanced enough to have explored the world and to have mapped and measured it when it was still in the grip of the Ice Age. On megalithic geometric heritage. And I've got some cool photos of the Great Pyramid, the Egyptian pyramids together there, and the megalithic walls of Saxuayuman. Probably not pronouncing that one correctly. Okay, quote, I have long argued, as I have long argued, were incorporated into a system of architecture central to the beliefs and lifeways of a lost civilization of remotest prehistory. When that civilization was destroyed in the series of cataclysms that brought the last ice age to an end, there were survivors who took the system 
with them, seeking to replant it in the many different parts of the world where they found refuge. Instead, I suggest that the similarities and differences between certain ancient monumental structures created around the world at different times by different cultures are best explained by a remote common ancestor civilization that left a legacy of ideas and knowledge in which they which they all shared. Once again, I suggest we are looking at the remnants of an advanced system that propagates itself through time and across cultures with powerful memes among which geometry and cosmic alignments take a large share. We do not know where or when this system originated. Quote, it's almost as though a guiding hand has been at work behind the scenes of prehistory. If so, whether through secret groups of insider initiates or by some other means of cultural transmission, this hidden influence appears to have been active in the Americas since before the onset of the Younger Darius to have undergone long periods of inactivity and to have re-emerged again and again at crucial junctures to shape the direction of civilization. Thus, we arrive at the most parsimonious explanation. That's a great word, parsimonious. If you don't know, parsimonious just kind of means the explanation that makes the most sense. The explanation that requires the fewest crazy assumptions, the explanation that is the shortest you know, uh, the shortest journey between two points. By the way, I'll mention to you, I pick up new vocabulary, of course. As I'm reading books like this, I want them to add to my vocabulary so that I can become a, a more well-spoken dude, right? And what I use for this is the app Supermemo. You're going to want to check out Supermemo. I talk about it on my website elsewhere, or you can just Google search this. It's a free app, smartphone, web browser app, and you insert flashcards into it, and then it has a really cool algorithm that has you practice the new vocabulary that you wanna learn at the optimal time so that you're forgetting as little as possible and getting the biggest bang for the time that you're spending studying. And I use a particular color in my highlighting. I read in Kindle and then I use the orange highlight color for anything that I want to put over into Super Memo. This is like a major, this is like a life hack. This is a mind hack for remembering more of the things that you read. It's pretty cool and it's free. So you're going to want to check out the content that I've done on uh, 
I call it life hacking forgetting. Check that out. Maybe I will link that. I'll link that somewhere. But I should point out that this is this is how you grow your vocabulary as you're reading books. Anyways, okay, the most parsimonious explanation is, quote, traces of the same spiritual concepts and symbolism that enlighten the Egyptian texts are found all around the world among cultures that we can be certain were never in direct contact. Straightforward diffusion from one to the other is therefore not the answer. And coincidence doesn't even begin to account for the level of detail in the similarities. The best explanation, in my view, is that we're looking at a legacy shared worldwide, passed down from a single, remotely ancient source. What's tantalizing, however, is that the influence of the lost civilization declares itself repeatedly in the commonalities shared by supposedly unconnected cultures all around the ancient world. The deeper you dig, the more obvious it becomes that they did not get these shared features from one another, but from a remote common ancestor of them all. Atlanteans are the most parsimonious explanation. So let's get away from some of this, you know, some of the, the evidence from the technicals, and we can get into the sphere of high octane speculation about Atlantean philosophy, because I'm a philosophical kind of guy. So everything that presented here is a, a tantalizing hypothesize, right? And it's a hypothesis that's no longer in the category of silly history channel documentaries and clickbaity YouTube videos. Increasingly, it's, it's starting to become mainstream history. Plato called this civilization Atlantis. But we, frankly, have no idea what they called themselves. They may have lived in the center of what's now the Sahara Desert or the uh, southwestern coast of Spain or quite possibly in North America. We really don't know. We have no idea what their language was like. The names of their greatest men and women are forgotten. But we owe them a lot. Their deliberate efforts and sacrifices resulted in civilization flowering around the globe. But there is one thing that we know we have somewhat in common with them. They almost certainly had a universalist theory or view or philosophy of ethics and morality. I'll explain what I mean by that. 
This means that everybody has to play by the same rules. It stands in stark contrast with tribal morality, where there are different rules for different types of people. If there's one thing that we know from more recent history, it's that civilization is downstream and sometimes it can be a long stream. Civilization is downstream from universalist morality. If we look at the world now or any point in the last several thousand years, the best societies, the places where you might choose to live if you had a choice of where to be born, were the places with the most universal systems of ethics, where a poor farmer had the same rights as a rich aristocrat. For at least a hundred thousand years, life in Europe was brutal and short. But then something changed. And in a relatively short period of time, historically, uh, about 2,000 years, in Europe, there was tremendous innovation, invention, renaissance, the abolition of human serfdom and slavery, rule of law instituted, human rights enshrined, civil rights, and great leaps forward in medicine and science. What was that something? What changed? We didn't undergo a drastic genetic change, making us more intelligent. We're more or less the same genetically. Here's what it was. It was a modicum of universalist morality in the form of Christianity. Every man had a soul of equal weight worthy of God's forgiveness and promise of everlasting life. That's something pretty unique to Christianity. Uh, paganism, the other uh, polytheism, those religions didn't have that modicum of universalist morality uh, central to them. And I know what some of you are thinking. What about empire building, slavery, colonialism, aristocracy, etc.? There's a lot of nasty tribalism in the history of Christendom that doesn't seem very universalist to, to me. While Western philosophy and the Bible espoused universalism, we were mostly pretty bad at implementing it because men lust for booty and power. But that modicum of universalist ethics was enough to get us from a state of stark barbarism to where we are now. When and where more universalist ethics arose, 
think uh, Protestant Northern Europe, there was even more innovation and acceleration towards a brighter future. And the one country founded explicitly with universalist morality, the United States became the shining city on a hill, the envy of the world, the place everyone wanted to go to. Tribal morality gets you a hundred thousand years of chasing boars through a forest and quote-unquote royals raping peasant girls with impunity, while in stark, stark contrast, universalist morality gets you from the very first airplane, the right flyer, flying on Kitty Hawk Beach in 1903 to footsteps on the moon in 66 years. Universalist morality, it's better. A lot better. If the Atlanteans mastered engineering, mathematics, and astronomy to a level on par with 18th or 19th century European civilization, and then tried to disseminate that knowledge around the globe to humans living in a brutal state of nature, and Hancock's books make a strong case that they did, then the Atlanteans most certainly had a universalist system of morality. So I say Atlanteans' lives mattered. But considering their morality, I'm sure that they would respond, yes, of course, all lives matter. While it would seem that they succeeded in implanting megalithic means reflective of the heavens above in proto-civilizations around the globe, it would seem that they largely failed to impart the primacy of universalist ethics to the savages who regarded them as gods or magicians. We would have to learn the hard way over the preceding millenniums that history records. In my philosophical work, I've made the case that modern Western civilization, largely propelled by regression to tribal morality, is heading towards a dark age. But this challenging time ahead may serve as a crucible that reignites universalist morality. If we can re-embrace this edifying philosophy, the great leap forward will be dizzying. We will cure cancer. We may defeat death itself. We will colonize Mars. And I, for one, look forward to salsa dancing on Olympus Mons. So now we are reaching the conclusion of this book review, and I need to address that question that the skeptic 
will raise. Why does Atlantis matter? The more pragmatically minded may question, why does any of this matter? Our civilization is plagued by some tremendous problems. How does what happened to our species 12,000 years ago help us at all now? Well, I'd contend that almost all our current civilizational problems emanate from institutional arrogance and anti-rational dogma. Institutions are necessary for civilization. Do you want to be able to order food from the convenience of your couch with your smartphone? Or do you want to hunt squirrels with a pointy stick to get something to eat? If you want civilization and all of its conveniences, we need institutions. Education, medicine, police, small government, media, medicine, religion, etc. And we badly need better institutions. The more people can learn to question the dogma broadcast by institutions, the better they will be. The young civilizationist dogma is so foundational to our public education that the more people who question that, the more people will question the other, much more damaging dogmas that children are indoctrinated into at a young age. And bad institutions will crumble. The more people will think to themselves, they lied to me about the origins of civilization. So maybe they also lied to me when they said I should pay taxes to the state because of the quote-unquote social contract. You know what? I'm not going to pay my taxes anymore. Or maybe they also lied to me when they said that we need to spend trillions of dollars fighting a war on the other side of the planet to spread, to spread democracy. Maybe that was all bullshit. Or maybe they also lied to me when they said that because all humans are metaphysically equal, we need to force equality of outcome with globalist big government socialism. Maybe that's a lie. Or maybe they also lied when they said that scientific progress towards a better world demands billions and billions of taxpayer dollars. Maybe that one was bullshit. Or maybe they also lied to me about more recent history when they did their damnedest to convince me that white European people are fundamentally evil. Or maybe they also lied to me when they said that vaccines are safe and effective. 
line up and take our vaccines. Or maybe they also lied to me when they said that I shouldn't have children if I wanted to save the world from apocalyptic climate change. When this seemingly inconsequential dogma about the origin of civilization topples, it will be a weighty domino that takes down other, more harmful dogmas. In conclusion, I gave the book four stars. Here's why. America Before is long, over a thousand pages, and dense. I found it less readable than some of Hancock's other books that I've enjoyed. America Before will be tougher for lay people, casual readers, and non-academics to get through. So minus one star for that. The first 10 chapters are pretty dry stuff. If you are new to Hancock's work or curious about Atlantis, I suggest reading Magicians of the Gods instead. That's a, that, that's a bit more readable. And of course, he has a bunch of pot, lengthy, lengthy podcast interviews that he's done breaking down the broad strokes of his, his view of ancient history. America Before is dripping with white guilt, giving rise to cognitive dissonance that I couldn't countenance as Hancock suggests that the Atlanteans were colonizers with a universalist system of ethics who imposed their culture on barbaric savages around the world, and they were probably white-ish, having spent a hundred thousand years at least living in the northern latitudes. Hancock cites myths describing Atlantean magicians as having distinctly European features. I considered titling this book review something like Atlanteans were colonizing Western white supremacists, who we should thank for civilization. But that might very well get it uh, censored on social media, so I, I didn't. I just entitled it Young Civilizationists are the new uh, Young Earth Creationists. Hancock has made a career of fighting mainstream historical dogma, but he doesn't challenge the very stylish neoliberal postmodern dogma that white men are especially evil the cause of everything bad that happened in the last 200 years of history. This is the one dogma that you can't challenge if you want to write a New York Times best-selling book. Even a book about the seafarers. 
of a lost civilization that had a lot in common with brave European Christian men who set off across uncertain seas to bring the light of civilization and reason to a savage and superstitious world. Although the, uh, the political correctness that the book is dripping in, it doesn't significantly detract from the message. I feel like the citing of the facts and the evidence is still is still pretty pretty solid, but I just need to uh, call out this uh, call out at least the cognitive dissonance that arises for me when people have this this crazy double standard. Uh, you know, one standard for white people and a, another standard for Atlanteans. It's it's funny the way we have a dueling dogmas, right? You can be anti-dogmatic yet still very politically correct. That's my review of America Before by Graham Hancock. I do hope that you will drop me a comment or who knows, maybe even a private email letting me know, drop me a tweet, you know I'm on Twitter, letting me know what you think of this deep dive into uh, ancient history and philosophy. I'm Jonathan, looking forward to a continued conversation with you.